Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. A bill that will prevent a freight rail strike is headed for President Biden's desk. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, it imposes a contract that some of the rail workers and their unions oppose. Earlier this year, President Biden helped negotiate the contract, which gives freight rail workers a big raise, but doesn't include the paid sick leave many workers were pushing for. At a press conference, Biden argued it was the only deal anyone could get. And the main mission at the moment is avoiding the potential economic disaster of a freight rail strike. We're going to avoid the rail strike, keep the rails running, keep things moving, and I'm going to go back and we're going to get paid leave, not just for rail workers, but for all workers. In other words, Biden and Democrats will continue advocating for paid sick leave, something that has been on their agenda for a long time and hasn't made it through Congress. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. The Minnesota Nurses Association says about 15,000 unionized nurses are poised to go on strike December 11th. They're seeking a new contract with Minnesota hospitals. They say they'll strike for three weeks. Hospitals say they're worried about patient care. Dr. Samir Gupta is concerned about pediatric patients at his hospital. And what we don't want to get to is a point where we are now unable to provide the care for the children in our community uh, and then having to send them potentially farther away than their homes. The Minnesota nurses claim hospitals are the reason that patient care is deteriorating. A federal appeals court panel has overturned a lower court judge's decision in a case involving documents seized from former President Donald Trump's Florida estate. The panel ruled the lower court judge was wrong to name a special master to review the seized documents. The panel's ruling means the Justice Department can access and use all the unclassified as well as the top secret documents recovered from Trump's property. Supervisors in a small, rural, and Republican-leaning Arizona county have finally agreed to certify this year's midterm elections. From member station KJZZ in Phoenix, Ben Giles reports the vote was 2-0. to zero. The Cochise County Board of Supervisors had for weeks delayed the typically mundane administerial task of canvassing the election. But on Thursday afternoon, a judge ordered them to immediately hold an emergency meeting and certify the election results. The judge determined that the supervisors had no discretion in the matter. Arizona law requires them to approve the canvas of roughly 47,000 votes cast in Cochise County. Had they not followed the judge's order, state election officials had warned their inaction could disenfranchise all those who voted in the November election. A statewide canvas of results from all 15 Arizona counties is scheduled for Monday. For NPR News, I'm Ben Giles in Phoenix. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. It is the final day of the royal visit in Boston. The Prince and Princess of Wales will award the Earthshot Prize during an award ceremony this evening at the MGM Music Hall in Fenway. The prize celebrates solutions to the climate crisis. Yesterday, Prince William announced a new living seawall project intended to boost marine biodiversity in Boston Harbor. It involves adding tiles to existing seawalls, and those tiles mimic natural habitats. The concept was a finalist for last year's Earthshot Prize. Stone Living Lab director Paul Kirshen says his team will design the tiles. We're going to create habitat for healthy ecosystems as opposed to invasive ecosystems. Ahead of this evening's award ceremony, President Biden will meet with Prince William at the Kennedy Presidential Library. The president is in town for a political fundraiser.
The former owner of a Framingham drug manufacturing company is going to prison after his company was tied to a deadly outbreak of fungal, men- fungal meningitis. Gregory Conigliaro was found guilty of conspiring to defraud the Food, food and Drug Administration. He was sentenced yesterday to a year in prison. Prosecutors say he lied about what was going on inside the New England Compounding Center's facility. More than 100 people died a decade ago after a drug made there made them sick. Voters in 20 Massachusetts legislative districts supported a measure for more transparency from state lawmakers in last month's election. The non-binding ballot question asked some voters whether committee votes in the House should be made public. WBUR's Amy Moon reports. An average of 84% of voters in the selected districts voted yes to require that House committee votes be published online, according to transparency advocacy group Act on Mass. Executive Director Aaron Leahy says even though it's non-binding, the outcome is a mandate for lawmakers. It's a really overwhelming victory for transparency and for accountability and democracy. Clearly, people believe in this. Unlike the Senate, the House is not required to share how representatives vote on bills in committee. The 20 districts that voted on the question ranged across the state. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Moon. You'll want to stay away from water in the Boston Harbor today. The Massachusetts Water Resources Authority is warning about a possible sewage overflow following this week's rainstorms. The area to avoid is upstream of the North Washington Street Bridge in Charlestown. Officials say to avoid boating, swimming, and fishing in the water until later tonight. It's 7.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. The Patriots lost to the Buffalo Bills 24-10 last night in Foxborough. The Pats' next game is Monday, December 12th, when they'll visit the Air- Arizona Cardinals. And the Celtics will be back at the Garden tonight to play the Miami Heat. Sunny today with a high in the mid-40s, increasing clouds overnight. Temperatures will be in the 30s. Showers tomorrow, mostly in the afternoon. There will also be some strong winds. The high will be near 60. Sunny on Sunday and in the 40s. Right now, it's 32 degrees in Boston at 708. WBUR supporters include Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. This is Amory Sievertson, co-host of the WBUR podcast Endless Thread. For thousands of people across greater Boston and beyond, WBUR is a lifeline a reliable, trusted source of news, facts, analysis, and truth. When you support WBUR, you strengthen and extend that lifeline. You protect WBUR as a resource for a whole community of listeners who rely on us. Becoming a supporter of WBUR means that every story, every interview, every second of breaking news, and every moment of joy you hear, you made that possible. You gave that to everyone who turns to WBUR to help them understand our region, our nation, and our world. So please, go to WBUR.org and make a contribution to WBUR for yourself and for your community, for someone who might not be able to give. 
You are our lifeline. Thank you. As you heard Emery say right there, if you are listening every morning, if we are your lifeline, think about being a lifeline for us when we need you the most. Our largest share of support comes from listeners. And I can't say that enough. Our largest share of support comes from listeners. And you could make even more of an impact as a listener right now with a double with a match that doubles your contribution. It's from some members of our Murrow Society. They have put up their money to incentivize you to give. And that's what you can do this morning. So your $10 becomes 20 and your 20 becomes 40 and so forth. Little gifts, big gifts, we appreciate them all. Just just go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 or, again, WBUR.org. Mm-hmm. I'm Rupa Shanoi, host of Morning Edition, here with Here and Now's Robin Young. And, you know, I'm thinking back on the year. As you call 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. And I know, you know, every year lately it feels as if there's been so many convulsions, but I'm thinking internationally, you know, the, the change of leadership in, in Britain, the uh, protest movement in Iran, what the heck is going to happen there? What's mm-hmm. endgame there? Or in China, you know, people who are locked in their homes. And, oh, my gosh. I mean, just the stories, you know, a woman had to watch her mother leap to her suicide But death it seems because, like they've relaxed restrictions. Now. Yes. And they find, you know, what's happening in China? Are they going to, are, are they reacting to protests? You know, that's unheard of. So these are all the kinds of stories you want us to follow. And we will, with your help, at 1-800-909-9287. And because of our leadership, I mean, you know, we are under relatively new leadership here uh, with Margaret Lowe. And I know, Rupa, you had a conversation with her and asked her what she thought, you know, listeners should know that they might not know. And here's what Margaret said. We're not a tiny organization, but we're not a giant organization. We're about 200 people strong, maybe 210 when we're soaking wet. And I'm constantly struck by the level of talent and ambition at WBUR. On top of that, people who work here are absolutely dedicated to the cause. They're here because they believe that producing high-quality journalism and enriching experiences that deepen understanding and deepen connection and community is a purpose worth working for. And so that's what tethers us together here. And I think what ties us to Boston and to the region, because we all live here. It's our home. And so we're reporting and covering a place that we call home, and we want it to be the best possible place to live. Margaret really gets to it right there. Mm. This is our home. This is our community. When you are listening, you are part of a community. You're part of a project, a local project, to keep our people locally informed with good, accurate, complete, unbiased information that they can't get anywhere else that they need to know and they depend on every day to connect them to the people around them. And when you fund stories that help us all understand how to improve our so- our society, you make everything around you better. So we're asking you to think about that as we are in this season of giving, as you are thinking about your year-end donations. This is our last fundraiser of the year, and we're asking for your support, especially now because because there is a match on the table. Mm-hmm. Whatever you give will be doubled by some mm-hmm. members of our Murrow Society. They are 
you know, making an example of themselves. They are showing that this is about more people giving. It's not just about what you give, although we are grateful for whatever you give, but it's about more people giving. So please go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Think about what WBUR brings you every morning. Think about how much you depend on it and give. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. And New England Innovation Academy, preparing students through innovation, entrepreneurship, and human-centered design. Tour day, December 10th, neiacademy.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. Good morning. A federal appeals court has ruled that former President Trump is not entitled to a special master independent review of documents that the Justice Department seized from his Mar-a-Lago resort. That ruling removes the hurdle that Justice said was delaying its criminal investigation into the handling of top-secret government information it says that it recovered from Trump's residence. Meanwhile, prosecutors are expected to make their closing arguments this morning in the felony tax fraud trial of the Trump Organization. Defense lawyers had their turn yesterday. And that's what we're going to discuss with NPR's Ilya Meritz. He's been watching the Trump Organization trial over the course of the past month. He joins us now from New York. Good morning, Ilya. Good morning. We're saying again that this is the first time this has happened. A former president's business was charged with crimes in court. What moments have stood out for you as you watched all this? It's just really unusual circumstances. The evidence shown to the jury included checks signed by Donald Trump and a lease agreement he signed, both from the time before he became president. If I had to pick a moment, though, it would probably be the testimony of the star witness, former Trump chief financial officer Alan Weisselberg. Yeah, this is the executive who pleaded guilty to tax crimes last summer, right? Yes, and he made a plea deal with prosecutors in August that in exchange for a lighter sentence, he would testify truthfully at this trial of the Trump Organization. And for hours in the witness box, Alan Weisselberg explained how as CFO in the company, he found all these ways to cheat on his personal taxes, paying himself in undeclared benefits like cars and an apartment. His demeanor was sober, he showed very little emotion, and then it was defense's turn to cross-examine him. And right off the bat, Wasselberg was asked about whether he betrayed the Trump family's trust, and he said yes, and his voice broke. He sounded like he might cry as he described his embarrassment. Hmm. Well, yesterday the defense reminded the jury of this standout emotional moment because they believe it supports the idea that Wasselberg cheated on his taxes on his own initiative to benefit himself. He wasn't thinking of the company. So what does that mean for prosecutors? How have they been responding to that? Right. So they began their summation late yesterday, and they ridiculed the idea that Weisselberg betrayed the Trump family. And they pointed out yet another unusual thing about the case, which is that Weisselberg, who ostensibly has turned on his co-defendant to make a deal with prosecutors, is in fact still employed by the Trump organization. There was a birthday party for Weisselberg in Trump Tower on the day he pleaded guilty in August. So that's not exactly showing your disappointment with someone who betrayed you. And prosecutors reminded jurors that there's a lot of documentary evidence showing that quite a few company executives were improperly paid as freelancers. 
that saved the Trump Corporation on Medicare taxes and it allowed these executives to take tax deductions that are really only intended for truly self-employed people, win-win. So if the defense's story is that there was one executive going way out of line, prosecutors want the jury to see a culture of rampant cheating. Hmm. Okay, so what do we look for next here? Right. Prosecutors will finish their summations this morning. We expect the judge to give jury instructions on Monday. Uh, that will be key to helping jurors understand what exactly constitutes criminal liability when the accused is not a person but a business. Mm -hmm. And then it'll be up to 12 Manhattanites whether Donald Trump becomes the first ex-president to see his business convicted of a crime. NPR's Ilya Meritz. Thank you. You're welcome. President Biden wants to change which states get a first crack at nominating Democrats to the White House. States that hold primary sooner have an early influence over who becomes the party's nominee. Biden announced Thursday he wants South Carolina to be first in line. He's calling for the swing states of Georgia and Michigan to be bumped up. And he wants Iowa to relinquish the coveted top spot. Joining us now from Iowa is Clay Masters of Iowa Public Radio. Clay, how much does it matter which states nominate presidential candidates first? So this was something he didn't release publicly, but was presented to members of the Democratic National Committee yesterday. This was ahead of a key DNC meeting on this starting this morning. Now, the plan was confirmed to me by a DNC member from Iowa. And yeah, the, the proposal would be South Carolina first, then Nevada and New Hampshire, then Georgia and Michigan. And then South Carolina has a sizable black population. And of course, it really saved Biden's campaign in the 2020 primary. Now, Biden had lost the first three contests, you might remember, pretty badly before winning easily in South Carolina. And then he also released a letter saying that Democrats must ensure that voters of color have a voice in choosing, quote, our nominee much earlier in the process. And that's been the, a key critique of Iowa's spot as first uh, state up. Yeah, I mean, critics have pointed to Iowa being an overwhelmingly white state for some time, along with New Hampshire. But that's just one criticism that's been leveled. In 2020, you might remember the Iowa caucuses had this smartphone app. The reporting results were jumbled. It wasn't tested, didn't work, and no one seemed to win on caucus night. Generally, critics say caucuses are also just not very accessible, and it's not the competitive swing state that Iowa once was. I mean, Republicans dominated here in the midterm, though I would add South Carolina is a red state as well. But at the outset of this year, members on this committee that set the calendar seem to have it out for Iowa, saying, you know, we want states going early that are competitive, diverse, and we favor accessibility over tradition. Yeah, and I think it's obvious that states have an interest in maintaining their hold on these early contests. So what do Iowans say about Biden's proposal? Well, the biggest argument Iowa seems to have going for them is the low cost to run a campaign here in Iowa. You know, it's regularly said the state doesn't pick the candidate. It serves to winnow the field. You might remember Obama won Iowa in 08, despite his small budget and says that kind of launched him to the White House. And as recently as 2016, Bernie Sanders started with a pretty bare bones campaign starting out, and that gave Hillary Clinton a run for her money by the end of it. Scott Brennan is the only Iowan on the DNC committee, and he says people should be looking at the entire current window and how it results in popular vote wins. Joe Biden didn't win Iowa. He got pummeled in New Hampshire, didn't do particularly well in Nevada, and he won South Carolina and became the nominee. That's how the process should work. And A, I should add, Iowa Democrats have proposed a lot of changes to the caucuses meant to kind of make them more accessible for people to participate. We won't get into the nitty gritty of that, though. One factor, though, in these discussions isn't, isn't it that the states have 
specific laws about when they're supposed to hold the primary contest. So how does that work with the Republican-led state there? Iowa does have a law on the books that keeps its caucuses first. Republican leaders here say they're not going to change anything to accommodate national Democrats. Republicans will still go in the traditional order, they tell me, for 2024. But some Democrats have told NPR that these state laws aren't all that important because the party could just not seat delegates from certain states. And I should state that uh, New Hampshire Democrats released a statement last night saying the DNC did not give it the first in the nation primary and the DNC is not going to take it away. So this is going to be interesting as we go into these talks today. Iowa Public Radio's Clay Masters. Clay, thanks. You're welcome. There's been a lot of controversy over how the tiny Persian Gulf nation of Qatar is hosting the World Cup. Like many in the Gulf, Qatar's economy relies on migrant labor. As NPR's Lauren Freyer reports, for many workers from South Asia, the World Cup brings mixed feelings. Kids have gathered in a park on Mumbai's outskirts, tossing around a ball. Do you know the World Cup? Ronaldo, Ronaldo. Ronaldo? What about Messi? Sitting on a park bench nearby is Ashwini Kumar, for whom scenes like this are painful. They remind him of his big brother. We used to play together like these kids, he says. His brother Vinod loved soccer and was thrilled to get a job three years ago in Qatar, building its World Cup stadiums. But Vinod never came home. He's one of what Qatari authorities say is hundreds and human rights investigators say is thousands of World Cup workers who died there. The Kumar family never really got answers. Ashwini says they were told various things, that Vinod died by suicide or in a workplace accident. He does remember his brother saying he had to do tasks he wasn't trained for, like firefighting. The company never even sent home his stuff. Vinod was 28. He has a widow and a two-and-a-half-year-old. The world should remember this while watching our favorite teams in these air-conditioned stadiums. Namrata Raju is an economist and researcher with Equidem, a labor rights group that interviewed about a thousand laborers in the lead-up to this World Cup. They alleged really worrying things, nationality-based discrimination, wage theft, and there were a lot of cases of overwork, varying forms of forced labor or other forms of modern slavery. Now, Qatar says it's faced unfair scrutiny and that conditions have actually gotten better because of this World Cup. Hassan al-Tawadi, the official in charge of World Cup infrastructure, spoke at a think tank conference this fall. What the World Cup did was it allowed for a significant number of reforms to be accelerated. But workers returning from Qatar say enforcement has been shoddy, especially with subcontractors. By phone from Nepal, a worker named Anish Adhikari tells me how he had to take out a loan to pay a recruiter $900 to get him a job with a construction company owned by the Qatari royal family. It took him half a year to earn that money back, at a salary that was much less than what he was promised. He left Qatar still in debt after backbreaking work in 125 degree heat. But a small part of him is also proud. To have helped build the glimmering golden Lusail Stadium, which will host the World Cup final. I ask if he'll be watching. 
He doesn't have a TV, he says, or much data on his phone. It's expensive. Back in the Mumbai park, Ashwini Kumar, who lost his brother, says he's not watching either. It was my brother who loved soccer, he says, and he died for it. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Mumbai. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. At WBUR and NPR, we bring you the kind of journalism that makes a difference in the world. Journalism with real impact requires a significant investment from our reporters and editors and our listeners. Our contributing listeners provide the largest share of WBUR's funding. So when you hear a story that makes a difference to you, make a contribution to us. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you. Fund journalism with an impact, like Walt Wuthman's recent reporting about um, police officers who are involved with misconduct and go on to other police departments without anyone ever knowing. This is stuff that has an impact. People are acting on that reporting right now. There's also lighter stuff, too, like pictures of the royal visit on WBUR.org. We are your eyes and ears locally and around the world with reports from around the region and from Washington and from Ukraine, etc. All of that takes money. Generous listeners gave WBUR their money to match your monthly contribution dollar for dollar. That's doubling whatever you give. So act now to double your monthly support to give WBUR the resources we need to keep bringing you Morning Edition. And Morning Edition listeners have really been stepping up this week. Join them by showing your support. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi, and here with me is Here and Now's Robin Young. And what she said, everything Rupa just said, I agree with. (laughs) 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Org. We heard just a few minutes ago from our the boss of us, Margaret Lowe, about how, you know, here at WBUR, we kind of punch above our weight. You know, we really do. I mean, look, we're a very robust station. We're so proud of that. And that's because of you. Mm-hmm. I mean, you guys, you know, have been stakeholders in this and you have invested in this and, and we have grown and it's been wonderful. But we're still punching above our weight. I mean, there's no, just no question. And that's what we're doing for you. I mean, it's kind of a loop here, right? I mean, you inspire us. Uh, by your calls at 1-800-909-9287. Or, or WBUR.org. Right? And, and logging in there. You inspire us. Our, our Murrow Society members inspire us. You know, they keep, you know, pooling their efforts to kind of help you along, you know, kind of pull you along in this. And t- today they're doing it by doubling every dollar uh, of your match, making it go that much further. We're all inspired by this, and we go back and punch above our weight. I mean, you know, it's a loop here, and you're in this loop with us, one 800 909 9287 or WBUR.org to help us do that. Yeah, I love this idea of doubling. Think about if you had two cars instead of one. 
if you had two houses instead of one, okay. if you like there, you can keep doing it. Whatever you give right now is doubled. And just like that car, just like that house, it's going to do that much more for WBUR. We know that you value this journalism. We know that you depend on it. You've shown that you've supported us, like Robin said, over the years. Now we need you to step up because times are hard for some folks. And we need the people who still can give to give more to make up for what other people can't give right now. So give now to do that, perhaps one of the easiest ways possible. All you have to do is give and have your money matched. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. 1-800-909-WBUR. Let me, let me tell you that years ago, we came up with this one 800 because it's 1-800-90.9 WBUR. I always forget that. Yeah. I know. I mean, it seems like we went through the effort and, you know, focus groups, whatever. 1-800-90.9 WBUR, because it's hard, you know, to remember it. Uh, WBUR.org, however you do it. Do it now, too. Beautiful morning. It's really shaping up out there. It really is. Um, and get it, get it done, you know, before you head into the weekend. We're doing quite well this week, we should say. We're so grateful. Yeah. You guys uh, are really stepping up. But there's always a little more, you know, that we need. <laughs> 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Uh, you know, do it because of everything you've heard this week. Think back over the week. And, and then I think you'll agree. It, it was a bargain. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And thank you. Support for NPR comes from this station and from StoryWorth. Each week, StoryWorth emails a loved one a question about their life. After a year, they'll publish family memories into a bound book to keep forever. Learn more at storyworth.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. This is NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The Senate is sending the president a bill to impose a union contract on railroad workers, but it failed to provide workers with paid sick leave. NPR's Jimena Bustillo has more. Members of the Senate spent hours deciding how to move forward with two measures the House sent them. The first forces railroad unions to accept a tentative agreement negotiated by the Biden administration. The second would have added seven days of paid sick leave to the agreement. But since they were voted on as two separate measures, the Senate had the option to pass the contract enforcing bill and reject the paid sick leave. And that is what they did. A federal appeals court has ruled that former President Trump is not entitled to the independent review of government documents seized during an FBI search of his Florida home, and the Justice Department may use them in its criminal investigation. Meanwhile, the felony tax fraud trial of Trump's real estate company continues today in New York. NPR's Ilya Meritz has more. Prosecutors will finish their summations this morning. We expect the judge to give jury instructions on Monday. Uh, that will be key to helping jurors understand what exactly constitutes criminal liability when the accused is not a person but a business. Mm -hmm. And then it'll be up to 12 Manhattanites whether Donald Trump becomes the first ex-president to see his business convicted of a crime. 
You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Congresswoman Catherine Clark is speaking out as part of her upcoming role as minority whip in the new Congress. She's responding to leaders of the incoming GOP House majority who say they want to focus on border security. Some want to impe- want to impeach the Homeland Security Secretary for his handling of immigration at the southern border. But Clark says Democrats have long been pushing for reform as part of what's called the Dream and Promise Act. We have so many young people who are contributing and are American in every single way except on paper. We have put this forward for years now with no Republican response. Clark is currently the assistant speaker of the House. A man is due in court today on charges. He played a role in last month's bank robbery on Martha's Vineyard. Police accuse Omar Johnson of being one of the three people involved in a robbery that paralyzed the island for hours. Another suspect has already been charged in connection with the crime. Police are still looking for the third suspect. Recreational marijuana use is now legal in Rhode Island. Pot shops opened yesterday. From our editorial partner, The Public's Radio, Ian Donis checked out the scene at one dispensary in Providence. The Slater Center's first recreational customer was 96-year-old Joe Morea, the grandfather of the dispensary's CEO. Morea says he's all for Rodan's move to become the 19th state to legalize recreational marijuana. I think they should join the rest of the nation, and I think it's good for That's what the people want. Why shouldn't they get what they want? Four other dispensaries also initiated recreational sales in Central Falls, Pawtucket, Portsmouth, and Warwick. Rodan could eventually have as many as 33 cannabis shops around the state after a yet-to-be-appointed regulatory commission reviews applications. Whether people can smoke cannabis in public depends on the law, in particular cities and towns. For WBUR, I'm Ian Donis in Providence. It's 7.35. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR. The Patriots lost to their division rivals last night in Foxborough. They fell to the Buffalo Bills 24-10. The Pats are now off until December 12th. That's when they'll visit the Arizona Cardinals. The Celtics will go for their sixth win in a row tonight. They're hosting the Miami Heat. And in your forecast, we end the week today with a sunny day and a high in the low 40s. Tonight, it grows a bit overcast and falls to the upper 30s. Tomorrow, cloudy and near 60 with high winds and a 100% chance of showers in the afternoon. Right now, it's 33 degrees in Boston at 735. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages three and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash NPR. And from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. Hiring in the U.S. likely slowed last month as rising interest rates weighed on factories and construction crews. 
But the job market remains unusually tight. The Labor Department is set to report this morning on job gains and the unemployment rate for November. NPR's Scott Horsley is with us now with a preview. Hey, Scott. Good morning, Rachel. So this report comes as the Fed has been battling inflation with the tool that they have, uh, raising interest rates. How are those higher borrowing costs affecting the job market? Forecasters think we're going to see somewhat slower job growth in November. Uh, Estimates are for something like 200,000 jobs added last month. Uh, That would be a downshift from the 261,000 in October. Some of that is just where we are in the recovery. Uh, the, The economy has already replaced all the jobs that were lost in the early months of the pandemic, so some slowdown would be expected at this point. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, you do have the Federal Reserve deliberately trying to slow the economy with those higher interest rates. Wells Fargo economist Sarah Howe says wages have been climbing at a rapid clip as employers compete for scarce workers, and the Fed is concerned that could push up already high consumer prices. The Fed has essentially said that they need to see a cooler jobs market to help reduce those inflationary pressures. So the Fed's been raising interest rates at the fastest pace in decades, and rates are likely to go even higher when Fed policymakers meet in less than two weeks. Which jobs are most affected by the Fed's actions, Scott? Construction workers and factory workers could be among the first to feel the effects. Uh, Those are industries that are especially sensitive to rising interest rates. We know the housing market has taken a hit with uh, mortgage rates now more than double what they were a year ago. Manufacturing has also started to see a slowdown. A survey this week showed factory activity declined in November for the first time since the very early days of the pandemic. As factory orders have slowed, some managers stopped filling job vacancies and others have even started laying off workers. Uh, But Tim Fiore, who oversees that survey for the Institute for Supply Management, says he doesn't think the sky is falling. I think this is still a soft contraction. I'm really hopeful that some amount of demand will come back. There's still pretty robust production plans for 2023. As we look more broadly around the economy, so far we're not seeing evidence of widespread layoffs. Uh, There certainly have been some high-profile job cuts, especially in the tech sector, but new claims for unemployment benefits are still uh, at historically low levels. But Scott, I still don't get why the Fed is tamping down the job market. I mean, they're supposed to want to promote full employment. And I understand they want inflation to go down, they want prices to go down so people buy stuff. But if people don't have jobs, they're really not going to buy stuff. Right. You know, at one point, the Fed was hoping the job market would cool off by itself. uh, But that really hasn't happened. And part of the problem is that while jobs have come back really quickly, the workers needed to fill those jobs have not. So the Fed is having to restore balance in the job market the hard way by tamping down demand. Uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell acknowledged this week that could result in somewhat higher unemployment. But he argues the alternative of just letting wages and prices continue to climb unchecked would be worse. Right now, people's wages are being eaten up by inflation. If you want to have sustainable, strong labor market where real wages are going up right across the wage spectrum, especially for people at the lower end, you got to have price stability. You know, right now, unemployment's still very low, 3.7% in October. So people are giving the Fed a lot of latitude to fight inflation. Uh, That latitude could shrink if unemployment rate climbs a lot higher. And Pierre Scott Horsley. Thanks, Scott. You're welcome.
The legal fight over President Biden's student loan relief program has put a lot of borrowers in limbo. And now the Supreme Court is going to have it say. Yeah, the court announced Thursday that it will hear arguments about the president's plan. They're going to do so in February. That will prolong the uncertainty for borrowers who are anxious to see how much of their loans might be written off, if at all. NPR's Alyssa Nadworny has been covering all this and joins us this morning. Hey, Alyssa. Good morning. All right. Give us the particulars of what the court decided yesterday. So the Supreme Court is going to hear a case filed just a few months ago by six Republican-led states claiming the state's loan authorities are going to be harmed by Biden's relief program. The court order is something of a blow to the Biden administration because in the context of this case, the administration had petitioned the Supreme Court to allow them to begin canceling student loan debts even while these various legal challenges were considered in the lower courts. Mm -hmm. But when the Supreme Court said, yep, we'll hear the case, it also said the administration will have to keep the loan cancellation program on hold. So borrowers aren't going to see their balances go down. Biden's plan, which relieves up to $20,000 in federal student loans for many low to middle income borrowers, has faced a number of legal challenges. Yeah, so let's talk about those because there have been several. Yep, and there's been a lot of confusion about is this all legal? And that's perhaps the biggest reason that the Supreme Court decided to step in and hear the arguments this term. I talked with law professor Lou Karen at the University of Alabama, who said he wasn't surprised it went to the Supreme Court. I think the legal issue is important and uh, difficult enough that it was likely that the Supreme Court would take it up. Heron says the court is going to weigh two things, the legality of the debt relief program and the idea of overreach. So does the Biden administration, does the education department have the power to do this? Right. And that's a central question. That's what Republicans are arguing, that the administration does not have that power. Yeah. So uh, let's just t talk about the borrowers who are really yep. at the center of this. I mean, you nodded to it earlier. They're just going to have to sit and wait, right? Yeah, that's right. It's going to keep borrowers in limbo a bit longer. So nearly 26 million borrowers have applied for some debt to be erased. 16 million borrowers have actually had their applications already approved. Huh. Madison Merlis, who's a grad student outside Detroit, is one of them. You get to the point where, okay, we're going to do it and then have it ripped away again. It's like, okay, well, I don't know if this is actually going to happen. Okay, now you're just kind of like jerking me around. <laughs> like, is it happening or is it not? Like, what is going on? So federal borrowers haven't had to make monthly loan payments more or less since the pandemic started back in 2020. Mm -hmm. But with the debt relief plan in doubt, some borrowers don't know how much they'll need to plan to repay. Sydney Gruyon Matos has $28,000 in debt. She should qualify for up to $20,000 in relief because she was a Pell Grant recipient. But now she's sitting here wondering, will she owe back the whole thing or just $8,000? The waiting game of finding out exactly how much I have to pay off. I just, yeah, I just want to know. Just tell me how much money I'm going to be paying off. As it stands now, borrowers will have to start making monthly payments again 60 days after a legal decision or 60 days after June 30th, 2023. So it's kind of whatever happens first. Oh, man, it's tough for those people. NPR's Alyssa Nadwerney. Alyssa, thanks for all your reporting on this. We appreciate it. You bet. California is one of the most culturally diverse states in the country, but the state agency overseeing the safety and health of its workers doesn't have enough bilingual employees. Find out how they plan to change that this afternoon on All Things Considered. Listen where you are, on your phone, on your computer, your smart speaker, and on your radio.
This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com careers. It's Leila Faldil from NPR's Morning Edition. The demonization of fact-based journalism is one of democracy's biggest threats. This aversion to truth has taken hold as the number of local newsrooms has dwindled, leaving reams of disinformation to fill the void. In public radio, we have a responsibility to counteract disinformation. This station is an oasis amid all the noise and fiction. Having a reporter at the school board meeting at City Hall, that is our resistance to the undermining of a free press. We resist by being there, by providing platforms for people to see themselves reflected and to see difference. We resist by building bridges and by holding people to account. We do it thanks to you. You give us the tools we need to fight attacks on truth by donating to this station. Here's how. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Leila Fondle said it so well right there. We have a responsibility. We feel that responsibility every morning to bring you the news that you need to know and that your community needs to know in order to make it a better place. And when you give now, whatever you give is doubled. In other words, matched dollar for dollar. So your contribution goes twice as far for WBUR. I'm thinking of other ways to say it, but <laughs> doubled, match, dollar for dollar, goes More. twice as far. But that match ends at 10 o'clock. So that's coming up pretty soon. So make sure you take a minute to give before this match ends at 10 o'clock. I'm Rupa Shinoy here with here and now's Robin Young. Hello to you. And we just heard Lady Farrell. How how wonderful has it been to hear her on Morning Edition? I remember her during the uprising in Egypt in mm-hmm. the middle of the firefights. She so brave, uh, such a, a, a lovely person as Talented well. Talented and hardworking. Yeah. I mean, just listen. And there's Rupa, who's just been such a, a fabulous addition here in the morning, Rupa. Aww. Well, you know I feel that way. And I'm, I'm also, as you dial 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org. I've been Googling around and look at some of the stories just this past year. It was just in February mm-hmm. that President Putin announced his invasion of Ukraine just last February. It feels like longer. Uh, then you had the Uvalde shooting, followed by the Buffalo supermarket shooting. The Omicron variant pops up. You have the FBI raiding Mar-a-Lago for the mm-hmm. documents that uh, Trump said were, weren't there, but were there. Uh, you have the death of Queen Elizabeth, the mm. assassination of the former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of Japan. Yeah. I mean, I can go. It's just amazing. The Democrats surprise success in the midterms. Nancy Pelosi stepping down, mm-hmm. changing the whole face of leadership in Washington. It has been a year. And listen to this. We know listeners have appreciated it. There's a lot of Boston flowing through WBUR. The programming, you know, local personalities, everything's very grounded here in Boston, it seems. I think we're incredibly lucky to be in a city that has such a rich public radio program. And I think WBR specifically does a great job of connecting people not just to national news and international news, but local. It makes me want to support WBUR. Support your home for public radio. Give monthly at WBUR.org.
Be part of what we're doing here. Make Boston strong. Keep it strong. That's what we do every morning. And right now, you get your contribution doubled. You get it matched double for do- dollar for dollar. Mm-hmm. And if you need a couple numbers to help that sink in, NPR employs 1,250 people at its headquarters in Washington. We have another 200 people working here in Boston and at WBUR. So for every person you hear online, there are others that are writing. For everyone you hear on air, there are others who are writing online. There are many others who are behind the glass that we're looking at right now who mm-hmm. make all of this possible. We need They're your help. They're completely ignoring us. Do you yeah, notice that? Yeah, I know. They're not paying attention. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, but we need your help to support them and keep this important service going. Make your tax-deductible contribution and get your contribution matched dollar for dollar by going for to WBUR.org or calling 1-800-909-9287 when you give before 10 o'clock. Your, your contribution is doubled, so it will go twice as far. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Thank you so much, because we have been hearing from people this morning, and yeah. it just really warms our heart, the cockles of them, <laughs> whatever that is, wherever they are. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Holiday Pops helping you prepare for the most wonderful time of year by unwrapping the magic of the Holiday Pops now through December 24th, holidaypops.org. And LabShares Newton, freeing up biotechs to focus on difficult diseases at state-of-the-art BL2 labs with a range of services and amenities, labshares.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm A. Martinez. At the World Cup, the U.S. next plays the Netherlands, tomorrow in Qatar. The team beat Iran in a dramatic match to make it to the round of 16. And at a press conference this week, U.S. team captain Tyler Adams came under the spotlight when an Iranian journalist chastised him for mispronouncing Iran. Adams apologized. The journalist also asked Adams if, quote, he was okay in representing a country that has so much discrimination against black people. The response given by Tyler Adams was widely celebrated for its thoughtfulness. Now, due to broadcast rights, we cannot play the audio, but he said there is discrimination everywhere and that the U.S. is making progress. We decided to ask Clint Smith of The Atlantic for his reaction. He's a poet, a best-selling author, and a soccer fan. Smith has written a piece for The Atlantic titled What We Ask of Black American Athletes. First and foremost, I was really impressed that a 23-year-old kid who is playing in his first World Cup, who was 15 years old the last time the U.S. played in the World Cup. He's the captain of his team, selected by his teammates. It was asked this question sort of out of nowhere. I was impressed by how thoughtful, how measured, how nuanced and respectful his response was. And I think it's also important to note that he was asked specifically about his own experience and his own idea and his own feelings about what it meant to represent this country. And those feelings are inevitably animated by his own life experience. As Tyler said, he has a unique experience in that he was a young black man who was raised by a white family and felt like that gave him an ability to move across different racial lines in ways that afforded him certain opportunities and afforded him a way of thinking about the world that might be different than somebody else. And, you know, there are 11 black players on this U.S. team and each of them, based on their own lived experience, may have given a different response than Tyler. But it doesn't make his response any less legitimate because blackness is and always has been a diverse, pluralistic, heterogeneous entity. 
Yeah, and then you got to factor into the the U.S.'s history of, in some cases, either not recognizing the accomplishments of black athletes going back decades, or in other situations, not recognizing or understanding the message behind their protests, especially when they do them either on the Olympic stage or on the professional level. Absolutely. And one of the things that I was wondering, too, was, you know, Tyler was asked this question by this Iranian journalist, and I couldn't help but wonder if a white teammate of his would be asked the same question. Like, why is it that black athletes are always in the position where they are made to uh, publicly wrestle with and answer for the sins of this country and ask what it means to represent a country that's engaged in anti-black racism or xenophobia or any manner of state-sanctioned oppression and violence. But it is very rarely the case that white American athletes who represent the same country, who are teammates with many of the people who were subjected to so much of this history of violence and second-class citizenship, what would it look like for them to be asked that question? What would it look like for Walker Zimmerman or Christian Pulisic or Josh Chardon? But why do you think specifically Black American athletes are asked to explain their stances, their positions on things, say, related to social justice or anytime they have a protest against something? Why do you think it seems to be more of something that America wants to hear? Like, explain yourself to us now. Yeah, you know, it's tricky because I think we also have to disentangle questions of good faith and questions of bad faith. And I'm not clear that the question that was asked of Tyler Adams was uh, necessarily asked in good faith by this journalist. And I think it was an effort to undermine America more broadly uh, than it was a genuine interest in what Tyler's response to that question might be. It is true that Black American athletes from the beginning of Black American athletes being able to represent this country in the first place have had to wrestle both within themselves, within their communities, and very publicly to the world about what it means to put on a jersey, to have the words USA emblazoned across your shirt, to have a flag on your chest, to carry that flag on your back, representing a country that for so long throughout the history of this country prevented those very people from having the opportunities to exist simply as citizen. You know, I think of Jesse Owens, uh, who won four gold medals in the Olympics in Germany in 1936, and who came back and had to ride in the back of the bus, the same as every other Black person, uh, who wasn't invited to the White House alongside the other white Olympians who were invited to the White House by FDR because FDR wanted to maintain his fragile New Deal coalition, and that included Southern Democrats, who, and, and to invite a Black athlete in 1936 to the White House was a non-starter. And so, you know, he's having to publicly wrestle with the idea that he was the most accomplished Black American, the most accomplished American athlete of those games, and yet was not invited to the White House to celebrate alongside other Olympians. And there are various iterations of that across American history. You mentioned Jesse Owens at the Olympics in 1936. Then I think Muhammad Ali won a gold medal at the 1960 Olympics uh, for the United States. John Carlos, Tommy Smith raising their fists against racism, wearing black gloves in Mexico City. What would you say, Clint, is the common thread between those three and even others that have dared to protest wearing Team USA's colors? I think that each of them recognized that they were in a unique position to bring attention to issues in their community, to history and policies of racial injustice. 
that for so long in our country's history have been swept under the rug. And John Carlos, Tommy Smith, Muhammad Ali, Jesse Owens, and and so many others. And, you know, so many Black American athletes in the last few years, especially after the murder of George Floyd, have used their platforms in all sorts of ways to make a point about where our country is versus where it needs to be. And again, they recognize that there is a unique opportunity to represent a country and to get up and say, we love this country. And because we love this country, we want it to be the best version of itself. And the version of itself that it is now is not that version. And it has a long way to go. And we need to hold this country accountable in getting where it needs to go. Clint Smith is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Clint, thanks a lot. Thanks so much. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. Our theme music was inspired by B.J. Lederman. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Rachel Martin. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Culligan Water, since 1936, committed to providing cleaner and safer filtered water on demand while working to help reduce the number of plastic bottles going into landfills. Learn more at Culligan.com. I'm Lisa Mullins. WBUR is here to help us all think harder. When we tell you a story, we think about how it'll touch your mind and sometimes your heart. Support journalism that has deep meaning in your life by giving monthly at WBUR.org. We just heard a really amazing example of what we bring you every morning. Just an interview connecting sports, race, equity, history, analysis. It's just thinking deeper, thinking harder, and thinking more critically. It's what we bring you every morning. And we know that our listeners recognize this. One of the listener comments that we received, I support WBUR because high-quality, rigorously vetted, ethically reported news is the foundation of our democracy. You can support that news, and you can make sure our community continues to receive it. And when you give now, whatever you give is doubled. It is matched dollar for dollar by members of our Murrow Society who gave their money to incentivize you to give. And when you give now, your contribution goes twice as far for WBUR. But that ends at 10 o'clock, so make sure you take a moment on this Friday morning, if you haven't already given this week, to give. And if you already have, thank you so much. Uh, I'm Rupa Schnoy here with Here and Now's Robin Young. Hello to you. And, you know, I've been thinking as people dial 1-800-909-9287 of some of the stories that have really jumped out at us. Recently, we we did the book um, In Sickness. And this is a memoir by the local doctor, uh, Barrett Rollins, a a cancer expert, who wrote about how his wife, Jane, who was also a world-famous oncologist, hid her cancer from him, and it wasn't until she 
collapsed and he's in the emergency room and sees that she has a huge tumor. Mm -hmm. How does this happen? You know, these this incredible human, uh, you know, puzzling story. Uh, it just is one of those things that stays with you, you know, because I'm, I'm thinking, well, what are some of the stories we have brought you since we keep saying about, you know, we've brought you these great stories. That was one that really held me, you know, for a while. And, and he was so honest about how he just doesn't quite know how it happens. Sometimes a couple can get caught in a lie, you know, in a falsehood. And just an incredible story. Yeah, and sometimes illness can really change people. Right. 1-800-909-9287. I remember, too, it was a big story here in the Boston area. Obviously, these two top Boston doctors. But whatever it was that brought you to your radio, uh, think about that. And then go to your phone. 1-800-909-9287. Funny. Go to your phone. Like back when it was like in the kitchen. Like you're not wed to it. It's not like in your pocket. (laughs) 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. And, and, you know, reflect on what the station did for you and then put that into a phone call. And if you can right now, this is a really good time to give a big gift. And we, as we have been saying, we appreciate all gifts. We are so grateful for everyone who gives. But right now, if you give $1,000 or $5,000, that gets doubled, just like the smaller gifts. $10,000 $10,000 becomes $20,000. i am talking big numbers. Those yeah. really, really help us. So get in on the match before it ends at 10 o'clock. Go to WBUR.org. That's WBUR.org. Or you can also call 1-800-909-9287 and keep this important service going. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the new Art Center Shop, featuring unique handmade gifts. Support local artists when you buy holiday gifts. Information at newartcenter.org. And Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The Democratic Party is shaking up the order in which states hold their presidential nominating contests. As NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports, it's likely that Iowa will lose its decades-long status as the first contest in the nation. The Rules and Bylaws Committee of the DNC is meeting to discuss and vote on a recommendation of a handful of states to hold their primaries in the early window in 2024, ahead of Super Tuesday in March. States that move to the top of the line lineup will get a boost in political power, not to mention the economic advantages of having campaigns set up shop ahead of elections. There's been concern among some Democrats in recent years that Iowa is not racially representative of the Democratic Party. The committee heard pitches from 17 states over the summer and is weighing factors like demographic diversity and competitiveness in a general election. Once the committee makes its decision, it will send its recommendation to the full DNC for a vote in January. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, Washington. The Senate has joined the House and voted to impose a contract on freight rail workers. The legislation would outlaw any potential strike action. The bill now heads for President Biden's desk. It does not include any provision for sick days. Workers have been demanding this. The House passed a measure giving the workers seven days of sick leave a year, but the Senate rejected that. 
President Biden rolled out the red carpet at the White House last night. He held his first state dinner honoring French President Emmanuel Macron. At the dinner, Biden toasted the French leader and the French first lady. To President Macron and his wife Brigitte, to France, ladies and gentlemen, to the history that binds us and the values that still unite us and to the future we're going to forge together. The relationship between France and the U.S. has been tense after the U.S. clinched a deal last year to sell nuclear submarines to Australia. That deal torpedoed a key arrangement Australia had to buy diesel-powered subs from France. A monthly tally of new jobs out this morning is expected to show some slowdown in the pace of hiring last month. NPR's Scott Horsley reports construction and manufacturing jobs could show the effects of rising interest rates. Forecasters think U.S. employers added somewhere around 200,000 jobs last month. That would be a downshift from October's gains, but still a respectable increase. The unemployment rate is expected to hold steady at a low 3.7 percent. Some industries that could see a marked slowdown include construction and manufacturing. Those tend to be particularly sensitive to rising interest rates. The Federal Reserve has been aggressively boosting borrowing costs in an effort to curb inflation. A survey of factory managers released on Thursday showed factory activity shrank in November for the first time in nearly two and a half years. Some factories have resorted to layoffs, but job cuts in the broader economy are still rare. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Prince and Princess of Wales will spend their final evening in Boston awarding the annual Earthshot Prize. The prize honors solutions to the climate crisis and comes with a million-dollar award. Prince William will also meet with President Biden today. The meeting will take place in Dorchester at the JFK Library. Biden's not staying for the Earthshot ceremony. He is in town for a political fundraiser. Ridership on the T remains well below pre-pandemic levels. That means the T is taking in less money in fares. The Boston Herald reports the T brought in about $89 million in fares in the third quarter of this year. That's $28 million less than what was expected. However, officials point out that fares only account for a fraction of the T's total revenue. A new report from a Massachusetts nonprofit recommends extending the train line that connects Boston and Lowell into New Hampshire. As Mara Hoplamazian reports, some business and community leaders have long advocated for passenger service into the Granite State. Regular Massachusetts Bay Transit Authority service to New Hampshire ended in the 1960s. But the new report from Transit Matters advocates for electrifying the trains on the MBTA's Lowell Line and adding stops in Nashua, Merrimack, and Manchester. Electric trains could make the trip faster, getting commuters from Manchester to Boston in just over an hour, according to the report. Train tracks between Massachusetts and Manchester would need to be repaired, and the report says New Hampshire would be responsible for the expenses, similar to an agreement the MBTA has with Rhode Island. Supporters of passenger rail in New Hampshire say an expansion would be good for jobs, tourism, and the environment, but opponents say the costs outweigh the benefits. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Mara Hoplomazian. Harvard University is set to rebuild the American Repertory Theater in Alston. Plans filed with the city of Boston show the new ART will have larger performance spaces as well as rehearsal and classroom space. Harvard is also proposing to build an apartment building with over 200 units for its graduate students. It's 8.07. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash way to wealth. The Patriots lost to the Buffalo Bills 24-10 last night in Foxborough. New England's record is now 6-6. Six and six. The Pats' next game is December 12th when they'll visit the Arizona Cardinals. And the Celtics host the Miami Heat tonight. Boston won easily when the teams played on Wednesday. Sunny today with a high in the mid-40s. Increasing clouds overnight. Temperatures will be in the 30s. Showers tomorrow, mostly in the afternoon. There will be strong winds, too. The high will be near 60. Sunny on Sunday and in the 40s. Right now, it's 34 degrees in Boston at 8.08. WBUR supporters include Showtime with the new original series, George and Tammy. Jessica Chastain and Michael Shannon star as the complicated couple behind some of country music's most iconic songs. George and Tammy premieres December 4th on Showtime. WBUR built a multimedia reporting team to provide serious, deep, compelling coverage on one of the most important issues of our time, the environment. Changes to our climate pose serious threats to our communities, our health, and our planet. These threats aren't off in the distance. They are happening today, all around us. To maintain this team and this coverage, WBUR depends on you. Specifically, we are asking for your financial support. I'm Martha Biebinger. A contribution of $10 or $15 a month will have a big impact. Here's how you can help. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and think about everything you get on WBUR. You made it possible. You made all of that coverage possible, important coverage from people like Martha Biebinger, who are working every single day to bring you what you need to know about our region and others across the world and across the country who are working to bring you what you need to know. This is your chance today to fund that very important journalism and make sure it keeps coming to you and your community. And right now, your contribution goes twice as far for WBUR because contributions right now are matched. They are doubled. When you give right now, members of our Murrow Society have put up their own money to tell you to give. And when you do, they will match it dollar for dollar. So just go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Keep in mind that match ends at 10 o'clock. So we don't have much time. We need you to step up really soon here. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Here and Now's Robin Young. 1-800-909-9287. WBUR.org. And think of all the different ways and the times that you're listening. Maybe in your car radio right now. Maybe in the radio in the kitchen. Maybe on your laptop. Maybe you're using a smart speaker thingy, which I don't, Rupa, as people are calling one 800 because do you remember the phone, the, the uh, story on NPR? About, about uh, recording everything? Uh, oh my God, there was a couple in doing what couples do in bed, and then they were talking about work, and then the guy gets a, a phone call saying, stop, stop, everything you're saying is being emailed, everything you've just done is being emailed to an entire workforce, and he must have said something like, seriously, I need to send an all-company email, but I hate these people. Anyway, Siri did it. Anyway, just I'm saying, just beware of that. But as you're listening to us in whatever way you are, know how important you are. Here's Margaret Lowe, our leader. 
it's important to say that the largest portion of our funding does come from listeners and people who rely on WBUR, and that can be $5 a month, and it can be $5,000 a year, and it can be $50,000 a year. Every little bit really makes a pretty gigantic difference. Yeah, this is about what we do together. This is a project we are all making happen together. This is about us and our local community making sure we have an important resource, that we have unbiased, complete, deep journalism that tells us about Boston, the region, the country, the world. I mean, NPR programs Mm -hmm. and newscasts are broadcast on more than a thousand stations. All of those stations, just like this one, we work together to make sure you need to, you know what you need to know. So show that you support that. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and act now while we still have this match on being offered so your contribution goes even farther for WBUR. WBUR. That's WBUR.org or 1-800-909-9287. 1-800-909-9287. And, and just think of a moment. Think of a moment that made you just, you know, uh, gasp, baby. And I'm thinking of a story recently. We loved this story. It was Diana Berent, who is a longtime a COVID, long COVID sufferer and an advocate. We've been speaking to her for a couple years now. And then we also spoke to her new husband, who is a widower of a woman who took her life because of COVID. Diana and this gentleman got married. It was a COVID love story. And in the midst of this terrible pandemic, you know, Nick Guta, whose wife had taken her life because of long COVID, is able to understand Diana Barrent, his new wife's trials and challenges. And in this moment of pain, they found each other. And we just thought, oh my gosh, you know, it's moments like that that bring you to the radio. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org, you know, to show your appreciation for them, but also to help fund future stories. Mm -hmm. 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. Good morning. In China, protests against the government's tough pandemic control policies have ended with a police crackdown. Yet, there are small signs emerging that the voices of those who bravely took to the streets were actually heard in the halls of power. NPR's John Ruich reports. China's dynamic zero-COVID policy has been the bedrock of the government's approach to the coronavirus for the entire pandemic, with its mass testing, lockdowns, and forced quarantines. China's strongman leader Xi Jinping has been a big backer, so for political reasons alone, few think the government will scrap it wholesale anytime soon. There are also legitimate medical reasons to take it slow. But analysts think the protests have been a catalyst for change. That's State TV reporting on a meeting between Sun Chunlan, the leadership's point person on COVID, and frontline health workers on Thursday. Sun said it's important to take the initiative to, quote, optimize and improve prevention and control policies. And she admitted the Omicron variant's ability to cause illness is weakening. That's a big shift in tone for China. I think that things are happening quite fast. For her to say something like that publicly is an indication or paving the way 
for a change in policy. That's Dr. Winnie Yip, an expert at Harvard University who follows China's health policy closely. She says the government set a fresh target to dramatically boost vaccination of the elderly by the end of January. You see that a couple of cities have reduced their restrictions, and there's no repercussion of that, which is again another signal. Lockdowns have been lifted in cities including Guangzhou in the south and Zhengzhou in the center of the country. How fast the policy changes will come is unknown. For months, experts have been pushing the government to ramp up vaccinations and cut back on testing, lockdowns, and travel restrictions. And it looks like it took mass protests against the policy for this to finally start happening. The protest is sort of moving them. It might be pushing them to a faster timeline. And that's good, she says. But they're not out of the woods. If they move too quickly, there could be a surge in cases and deaths. John Ruich, NPR News. As China weighs potentially easing its strict zero-COVID policies, we're going to hear about how we got here and what's to come with the University of Michigan's director of the Center for Chinese Studies, Mary Gallagher. Mary, much of China's struggle with COVID is linked to low vaccination rates. The country is going to stick with its own vaccines, which experts say are less effective than the ones being used in the U.S. and other countries. So how is this affecting vaccine hesitancy in China? Yeah, that's a great question. So China's vaccine hesitancy is mainly uh, among older people, and it's been uh, very difficult for the government to get particularly elderly vaccinated. They have hesitancy around um, side effects, and they've often been told by their own doctors that they don't need or that they shouldn't get the vaccines. So the advice on getting vaccines in China is actually the opposite, which is that older people maybe shouldn't get it or if they have health conditions that they shouldn't get the vaccines. So doctors in China are, are saying for them not to get the vaccine that the government is providing. That's been the case previously. I think with this new drive, they're going to have to change their tune because there's going to be a really big push in the next few weeks to get, what, 90, 95 percent of the population vaccinated and boosted. How big of a push, you think? How far is the Chinese government willing to go to get people vaccinated? You know, they've been pretty careful. They don't have these really strict vaccine mandates that you've seen in other countries. They're trying a lot of enticements, you know, getting, giving people gifts or money, but I think what they'll have to do is starting to use, you know, not being able to travel not being able to get certain types of benefits if they're not vaccinated. I'm kind of surprised to hear that because you fear with an authoritarian country that they wouldn't try to entice people. They would just say, this is what you're going to do. Well, I think it puts them in a tough position. I mean, elderly people, you know, they're not you don't want to be seen pushing elderly people around and poking mm -hmm. them with needles when they don't want to be. So I think it's going to be really difficult to get that population vaccinated. They're going to have to use their children and, you know, just trying to um, coerce, not coerce, but like get people to think about, you know, getting China out of the out of the pandemic requires that this elderly population gets vaccinated. Why do you think China just didn't do a mass vaccination campaign a lot earlier in the pandemic? I, well, I mean, they did have their, their vaccination rate has never been bad. It's always been high and, and certainly higher than the United States. But at the same time, they um, have been trying to develop their own mRNA vaccine for quite some time. So I think they've been waiting for better vaccines and maybe waiting for the big push to, to come with better vaccines. They're running out of time, obviously, because the protests have accelerated the need to reopen. Now, China's a zero COVID policy has kept uh, virus related deaths uh, low, remarkably low, actually. Uh, virus, though, has become more transmissible and there are signs that the strategy is starting to fail and lifting restrictions now we're hearing might lead to a huge surge in cases. Has has China essentially wasted the past two years, Mary? 
I feel like zero COVID became uh, a very successful policy. It was very associated with Xi Jinping, the leader himself. And I think it caused a big delay in thinking through what's the next stage in their, their COVID policies. And so they've, you know, they've basically sat on this policy that initially in 2021 looked great. And in 2023 and going into 20. 2022 and then going into 2023 really doesn't look like the best policy. So they've wasted a lot of time and now they're being pushed to reopen, I think, faster than they should be given where they are right now with vaccinations. Considering how closely associated, as you mentioned, uh, zero COVID has been to Xi Jinping, I mean, is this, how big of a crisis is this for him? Well, if you look at what happened to Taiwan, for example, which, you know, also had a big uh, surge in elder, elderly deaths when they reopen, that's the fear that China has now, which is that reopening quicker, local governments are gonna have to do this and experiment with you know, moving away from zero COVID. There, there'll probably be a lot of variation across the country, but they're at a, at a risk of a big surge in elderly deaths if they do this too quickly. But at the same time, the economy is, is stagnating and young people, as we've seen in the last couple of weeks, are really fed up with zero COVID. What do you think the chances are that Xi Jinping will kind of evaluate what's been going on lately and maybe rethink things or take a different track? Or is that just something that he just doesn't do? Well, I think it all depends on what type of advice he's getting. And I think the big question that a lot of us have is what type of advice is he getting? Is he getting good information? Do people have enough uh, confidence to say to him, look, zero COVID is no longer working. We need to try something new because that looks bad for him if it's if it's so associated with him as the leader. He just re-upped himself for another five years uh, when traditionally that doesn't happen in China. Is this an opportunity for someone maybe in China to to maybe challenge his leadership at some point? I think in the short term, no. I think he's pretty secure. He's put a lot of, of his own people into the, the top leadership. So I don't think I'm expecting anything to happen in the next couple of years at least. But, you know, Xi Jinping is a mortal man and he will eventually have to pass on. So what's going to happen in the next five years is his people will now also be jockeying for, you know, the next leadership uh, in five years. So I don't think he's out of the woods. And I think this has taken a big hit on his reputation because as we move out of zero COVID, we're going to see a lot of, um, you know, a lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen in China's healthcare system. That's Mary Gallagher, director of the Center for Chinese Studies at the University of Michigan. Mary, thanks. Thank you. When the White House hosts a state visit, there's obviously politics, like President Biden saying yesterday he wouldn't rule out a meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin over Ukraine. But there are also certain traditions to keep, a 21-gun salute on the South Lawn, a meeting in the Oval Office, and the glamour of a state dinner. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports on President Biden's first state dinner with French President Emmanuel Macron. In a large glass pavilion on the South Lawn, more than 300 invited guests took part in one of the oldest traditions at the White House. State dinners go as far back as 1874, according to the White House Historical Association. But they took more shape in the 1950s and 60s when the First Lady and the White House social team started planning elaborate invitations, menus, and floral arrangements. And this week, with French President Macron in town, it was no different. Here's First Lady Jill Biden earlier this week. It's an expression of welcome and friendship a way to connect through a language that sort of transcends words. As each dish comes to the table, so too does the meaning behind it. The dishes on the menu incorporate ingredients from all over the United States. 
There was poached lobster from Maine, cheeses from Oregon and Wisconsin, and wine from Napa Valley. The decor for the dinner was meant to show the long-standing ties between the U.S. and France. The Statue of Liberty, a gift from France to the U.S., was displayed on the menus and inside the pavilion on the South Lawn. The flowers had connections to France, too. The arrangements had irises, the national flower of France, and piano roses because of Macron's love of the piano. Attending the dinner last night were celebrities like comedian Stephen Colbert, singer John Legend, and actress Jennifer Garner. And some guests, like Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, took the opportunity to show off their French. I took a course in high school called ALM. They taught you to read French explicitly. So I can go, but I don't know what the hell it means. As traditional as state dinners are, it's not common that they're held during a holiday season. In a short time, White House Social Secretary Carlos Elizondo and his team made arrangements for the president's granddaughter's wedding at the White House, the Christmas decorations, and a state dinner. But as Elizondo told reporters earlier this week, we're not tired, we're just full of caffeine. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boathouse, supporting La Collaborativa, dedicated to uplifting Latinx immigrants with food, housing, jobs, education, training, and more, and providing 10,000 families with holiday meal boxes this Christmas. Donations accepted at la-collaborativa.org slash donate. As you support organizations that have deep meaning in your life and in our community, please make a year-end contribution to WBUR. Hi, I'm Anthony Brooks. Your gift of stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund will become something much bigger. Simply put, your gift enriches communities around Boston and across our region. It will help us all. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and thanks. You know, thinking about our impactful reporting and hearing from Anthony Brooks really takes me back to the midterms mm-hmm. when Anthony had clearly been up all night mm-hmm. and still was here the next morning for to, to talk through every single important angle of what had happened the night before, just dead on his feet and still doing the great reporting that we all depend on. He lives for that, by the way. He does. Yeah. He does. But the point is, he was very tired and he was still working. (laughs) And that's the kind of dedication that you should, we hope that you recognize and support. So when you give right now, we are so lucky. We still have another hour and a half or so of a match. Uh, We will uh, double your contribution 
whatever you give gets matched by members of our Murrow Society who have given their own money to ask you to give. And when you give, they will match your contribution dollar for dollar. But that ends at 10 o'clock. So this is a really good time to give big gifts if you can and have that doubled by uh, members of our Murrow Society. And think about how that's maybe tax deductible. And this is your end of year seasonal giving. It'll feel really good. Just go to WBUR.org or call one 800 909-9287. This is the right way to end the week by supporting the institutions that you really care about. WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Here and Now's Robin Young. And this has been such a pleasure, Rupa. As people call 1-800-909-9287. Uh, they have been. You know, they've been doing that. Yeah. But also, I didn't realize, I was just told that at least 7 out of 10 of you who uh, help us out do it online. Mm-hmm. So let me say that really slowly. It's WBUR.org. <laughs> And it's so easy. There's a little clicky button there, you know, donate now, and you go donate. And by the way, you can also increase your monthly gift if you're already giving on a monthly basis and you're thinking, ah, you know, inflation. <laughs> I should probably yeah. put a little more in there. Absolutely. You know, uh, go for it. And by the way, what you put in will be matched dollar for dollar. You know, it increases your monthly match. Uh, so one 800 909 for those of you going online, however you do it. Do it to support this great uh, storytelling and news gathering that you've come to depend on. And we've come to depend on you. Let's listen to some of you. I support WBUR because it keeps me informed. It enriches my life and it keeps me connected to the world around me in a way that I don't have time to do all by myself. They help me to stay educated on the issues that are going on, not only in the nation, but in the world. And I want to contribute to that and help them be able to give those services, not only to me, but to everyone in the community. I don't want to see one of the last bastions of quality journalism go by the wayside. I want WBUR to remain independent, and the only way that happens is if I contribute and if other people contribute. Become a member today. Give monthly at WBUR.org. I love hearing from listeners. They really mm-hmm. make this argument way better than us. They, they, You can tell that they believe it. They hear it every morning, and they want to keep it going. I, I I was looking at some other listener comments that we got recently, and it, I love the, the tone in this one. It, quote, my sustaining gift is self-interest, really, mm-hmm. and finally having funds to put toward what is so deeply important to me in the face of the last several years in the U.S. I'm hoping to make up for the loss of funding so for so many others who cannot no longer give. That's the kind of attitude so many people bring to WBUR. This is a community project we all do together. And when you give before 10 o'clock, you get your contribution matched. So it goes further for WBUR. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. It is, there was self-interest there. You know, they want this station to be here for, for them. But there was also graciousness. They're mm-hmm. doing it for people who can't because we know that some people get hard hit. So 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. For whatever reason, do it. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features presenting Spoiler Alert, starring Jim Parsons, Ben Aldridge, and Sally Field. Based on the memoir, his life story became a love story. Directed by Michael Showalter in select theaters today. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks NyQuil Severe, a nighttime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. 
and from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The House panel investigating the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol will meet behind closed doors today. Members are considering potential criminal referrals of former President Donald Trump and others. NPR's Claudia Grisales reports. The House Select Committee will consider possible criminal referrals against former President Trump and others. Committee Chairman Benny Thompson told reporters a decision could come next week. We'll just accept the report and, and we'll probably one day next week make a decision one way or the other. The panel formed a special subcommittee comprised of the panel's lawyers to make recommendations on criminal referrals and other actions. Thompson said the panel could publicly announce its decision on the plans next week. Claudia Grisales, NPR News, the Capitol. A federal appeals court ruled yesterday against an independent review of documents found in the Florida home of former President Trump. This clears the way for all the records to be used in a criminal investigation. The Senate has passed and sent to the White House legislation to avert a freight rail strike next week. The House had passed the bill earlier. It requires the companies and the workers to accept a proposed settlement that was reached in September. The Senate rejected a separate House passed measure that would have added seven days of paid sick leave. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. President Biden wants to strip New Hampshire of its first-in-the-nation presidential primary. The president is asking the Democratic National Committee to let South Carolina go first in 2024, with New Hampshire and Nevada voting one week later. As Josh Rogers reports, that's not sitting well with Granite State lawmakers. Biden's plan will need the approval of the full DNC next year, but it makes good on the goal of many national Democrats to give voters from more racially diverse states a bigger say in the earliest primaries. It also runs counter to New Hampshire state law, requiring the primary here to take place a week before any similar nominating contest. New Hampshire's congressional delegation came out against Biden's proposal. In a statement, Senator Gene Shaheen derided it as short-sighted and frustrating, but also said it will have no bearing on when New Hampshire holds its primary, which she said, quote, levels the playing field of all candidates, regardless of cloud or background. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Josh Rogers. A former Natick town official will be sentenced today for her role in the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. Suzanne Ayani organized a bus trip to Washington for members of her right-wing group. She was also among those who stormed the Capitol. Ayani pleaded guilty in September. Prosecutors are suggesting she spend a month in prison and three years on probation. The drought in the state is getting worse. The U.S. Drought Monitor says 70 percent of the state is under abnormally dry conditions. That's a jump from 52 percent the week before. However, the data come from before the rain hit this week. The worst drought conditions are on the North Shore and Cape Ann. It's 834. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack Repertory Theatre, presenting A Christmas Carol, a new adaptation highlighting Dickens' time in Lowell. Now through December 24th, MRT.org. 
The Patriots fell to the Buffalo Bills 24-10 last night at Foxborough. Marcus Jones scored the only touchdown for New England. The Pats are off until December 12th. That's when they'll visit the Arizona Cardinals. And the Celtics are back at the Garden tonight to play the Miami Heat. And the Boston Athletic Association has unveiled its elite field for next year's Boston Marathon. WBUR's Alex Ashlog reports it will include a runner many consider to be one of the best ever. Elliot Kipchoge of Kenya, the world's greatest marathoner, is coming to Boston to run the 127th edition of the iconic race next April. Kipchoge is the two-time Olympic marathon champion. He's also the world record holder in the event, and he will be making his first appearance in Boston. The field for next year's race also includes six former champions, including Evans Chibet, who won the men's race in April of this year. 2018 women's champion Des Linden will also be part of next year's field. She'll be running Boston for the 10th time. In your forecast, we end the week today with a sunny day and a high in the low 40s. Tonight it grows a bit overcast and falls to the upper 30s. Tomorrow, cloudy and near 60 with high winds and a 100% chance of showers in the afternoon. Right now, it's 35 degrees in Boston at 835. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Ian Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Rachel Martin in Washington, D.C. More fallout from the FTX crypto scandal. The former CEO Sam Bankman-Fried is under investigation for financial crimes. But he and his lawyers, meanwhile, are also making allegations about hackers pilfering customers' digital cash. NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin is here to explain. Hey, Jenna. Hey there. So this scandal has gotten so big, I understand that investors are suing big names, Tom Brady and Steph Curry. What? Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. Uh, to, to summarize, Sam Bankman-Fried in 2018, he created what's called a cryptocurrency exchange, which is a place to trade, exchange, buy, sell different forms of cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And it quickly got really popular, including with celebrities. But... Freed also had the second company, Alameda Capital, which was his own personal trading firm. The investigation, of course, is still ongoing, but what's been alleged is he took money from investors in FTX and he used it to trade with through Alameda and lost it. Okay, but draw the connection for me, Jenna. What does this have to do with cybersecurity? Is anyone accusing anyone else of stealing funds besides the founder? Yeah, that's actually where things get a little bit tricky. Bankman-Fried and his lawyers have alleged that it's not just FTX's mistakes that have left investors with empty pockets. They say that there's also been a breach after they declared bankruptcy and that they've hired a cybersecurity firm to investigate, though I'm not sure which one. Mm. Most recently, Bankman-Fried has changed his tune a little bit. During a live interview with The New York Times Wednesday night, he said he believes some money was seized by Bahamian and U.S. authorities, but he still alleged that an unknown third party took the rest. Regardless of whether hackers took the money, though, it is true that cryptocurrency exchanges are pretty vulnerable to cyber attacks. So explain why, and shouldn't that be quite troublesome? 
Yeah, absolutely. That does create some confusion because you've probably heard of this thing called a blockchain, which right. is a secure record of digital transactions that can't be altered. But once you move your money to exchanges rather than keeping it safe in your virtual wallet, that's where the danger comes. So I spoke to Megan Stiffel. She's the chief strategy officer for the Institute for Security and Technology, um, and she's testified about this topic for Congress. Here's how she put it. Not being a regulated space or commonly regulated space, there isn't this uh, kind of, as there is in the financial services sector per se, more broadly requirements around cybersecurity. And she said that that has led to some pretty big breaches in the past. For example, in October, one of the biggest exchanges, Binance, reported potential losses of up to half a billion dollars after a hack. So when all this settles, and it may be a while before it does with all these uh, charges and allegations, um, do you believe, Jenna, based on your reporting, that all this is going to inspire new cybersecurity requirements? So my, my my source at Megan Stiffel said that she thinks it's too soon to say, especially since we don't know if a breach happened here. Like you mentioned, it could be a while before mm -hmm. we get answers. But she said that it might be a chance for lawmakers or other countries, uh, FTX is in the Bahamas, for example, to think about how existing regulations might apply to cryptocurrencies. Even so, it's not a total disaster as is for investigators because there are a lot of tools in place to investigate these kinds of crimes that already exist. Uh, cyber criminals, for example, often think that cryptocurrency is really anonymous, when in reality, that blockchain that I mentioned earlier does actually record every transaction. Hmm. Plus, the process of actually turning virtual currency into cash isn't always so easy. Right. NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin, thanks. Thank you. The stalemate between railroads and their unions could be coming to an end. A bill headed to President Biden's desk would force rail unions to accept an agreement negotiated in September. The House and Senate both passed the bill that leaves out the sick leave that was a major sticking point for workers. NPR politics reporter Jimena Bustillo has been following these negotiations. So earlier this week, uh, President Biden asked Congress to pass the bill, and it seems like uh, the president got what he wanted. Yeah, he definitely did. And Congress really acted fast on this one. The formal ask came down from the president on Monday. And by Thursday mid-afternoon, the bill had already passed the House and the Senate. And the president made it clear he wanted a bill by Saturday. So this really was fast. So the bill does do one thing, and it requires that all 12 railroad unions accept the tentative agreement. This was the agreement negotiated between Biden administration members, managers, and union leaders back in September. And by requiring that the unions accept this, it makes any strike illegal. And workers were ready to strike as soon as December 9th because four of the 12 unions had rejected that agreement. Now, Labor Secretary Marty Walsh came to talk to Senate Democrats on Thursday. And when he came out, he told reporters that he didn't think more time for negotiations would be helpful and that any negotiations were now in the hands of the Senate. So lawmakers had to decide between letting union workers and managers further negotiate or step in now to avoid a potential economic crash if workers strike. What kind of options did lawmakers look at to resolve this impasse? Sure. The biggest sticking point was that the contract only provides for one day of personal leave. And that's why House members wanted to add seven days of paid sick leave to the contract, despite this passing the House and even having some GOP support. This measure also failed. So six Republicans voted in favor alongside 49 Democrats. One Democrat, Senator Joe Manchin, voted against. And here he is explaining why he didn't want to make changes to the tentative agreement. Piece of legislation already been negotiated by 
the Secretary of Labor and the labor unions and president, and I didn't think we should be interacting because if we do it, it never stops. And the next measure voted on did pass, and that was the 80 to 15 vote. Uh, lawmakers approved the bill that forces unions to accept the contract as is, and the president could sign it as soon as today. Uh, Joe Biden considered himself a, a very pro-labor president, and he's thought to have an administration favorable to unions. How does he feel about all this? You're right. He definitely does. And Labor Secretary Marty Walsh is a card-carrying union leader. And Agriculture Secretary Tom Vilsack, who was also involved in talks, has previously visited John Deere workers while they were picketing. So very pro-union pro here. But Biden's number one priority this week was getting the contract approved as soon as possible. This is because a major economic collapse was potentially around the corner. And his own advisors were telling him that railroad managers and unions were not going to reach an agreement before the December 9th strike deadline. The president warned that a rail shutdown could cause a recession, and this is because rails carry the bulk of key items like ethanol needed for gasoline and fertilizer needed for crops and food. Workers advocated that they should get sick leave in part because they work long hours and weeks during the pandemic when many got to work from home or even take time off, and they felt invisible during the pandemic. Um, even though they helped keep our supply chains alive. So some Republicans voted against the agreement because they say the president could have negotiated a better deal to begin with. But Biden touts that he negotiated a contract that no one else could. And this is because the contract has been nearly five years in the making. NPR politics reporter Jimena Bustillo, thanks a lot. Thank you. This is NPR News. WBUR supporters include the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help put joy on every plate this holiday season. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's independent journalism is essential to our democracy. Listener support is what keeps WBUR independent. It's the largest share of our funding. As you make tax-deductible year-end contributions to organizations that make a positive difference in your life and in our communities, put WBUR on your list. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Daryl C. Murphy right there, host of our new podcast, The Common. We are there for you so many different ways, so many different podcasts, programs on the radio here and now with Robin Young. And also news, <laughs> newsletters and online. WBUR is your daily companion and your connection to the world around you. Show that you value that. We're asking for your monthly contribution so we can continue to invest in the quality of our journalism. We depend on listener support to fulfill our mission. And that's why what you do right now is so important. And we're asking for your help right now because we have a match on the table until 10 o'clock. Whatever you give will be doubled. It will be matched dollar for dollar, but that ends at 10 o'clock. So if you can, we need you to step up and give. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with the aforementioned Robin Young. Thank you very much. Uh, WBUR.org, 1-800-909-9287. You mentioned Daryl, Daryl C. Murphy, who mm -hmm. I just love listening to him. And frankly, you know, some of the young, fresh voices yeah. we have here on WBUR, and I was going into the uh, ATC, the afternoon uh, fundraising, right after Daryl warmed the seat up for me with, you know, Lisa Mullins. And I said, gosh, I just love hearing Daryl. I'm just... 
I'm so sick of myself. And Lisa said, (laughs) I'm kind of sick of you too. Lisa Mullins, like the (laughs) nicest person in the world. (laughs) Exposed there. She fakes it. People, no, she is one of the nicest people in the world. It was pretty funny. But we just love all the new voices. They just inspire us and give us new life too. If you do as well, 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. And you know, you make them possible. You're investing in young careers. Mm -hmm. When you call and and, uh, dial that number. And so 1-800-909-9287, WBUR.org. And also, Rupa, I was just at WBUR.org where I'm now understanding most people donate. And I was catching up on some reading, including uh, learning why President Biden is coming here today to Mm -hmm. Boston. He's going to be working a phone bank with the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers for Senator Warnock's campaign in Georgia. That's interesting. I know. They said, hey, we don't want you here, (laughs) but go to Boston and help us. So we'll be hearing about that today. The important thing, though, is that this radio station is about where you live Mm -hmm. here. Here's the boss of us, Margaret Lowe. We're not a tiny organization, but we're not a giant organization. We're about 200 people strong, maybe 210 when we're soaking wet. And I'm constantly struck by the level of talent and ambition at WBUR. On top of that, people who work here are absolutely dedicated to the cause. They're here because they believe that producing high-quality journalism and enriching experiences that deepen understanding and deepen connection and community is a purpose worth working for. And so that's what tethers us together here. And I think what ties us to Boston and to the region, because we all live here. It's our home. And so we're reporting and covering a place that we call home, and we want it to be the best possible place to live. That's WBUR CEO Margaret Lowe talking about what galvanizes us here at WBUR. And Robin, do you Mm -hmm. know that she was actually a producer on Morning Edition? Oh, she like emptied the garbage cans. I mean, she really (laughs) started. She has done every single job there is to do, including, you know, running. Uh, NPR. I mean, right. she's just uh, top, top, top. And that shows that we really have commitment to this program, to every program at a fundamental level. And we know that you are that committed to our programming as well, to our newsca- newsletters, to our podcasts. We need your support, though, to make sure that keeps coming to you. So make a tax-deductible year-end contribution at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287 and have your gift matched dollar for dollar when you give before 10 o'clock today. But that is running out really quickly. We only have a little, about an hour and 10 minutes left to go. So please act now. Go to WBUR.org. Call 1-800-909-9287. And thank you so much for your help. Thank you. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. For centuries, the name Judas has evoked sentiments of betrayal. That's because in the Bible, Judas Iscariot sells out Jesus, leading to his crucifixion. But a Harvard student is reconsidering the concept of betrayal using Judas and Jesus as high schoolers in a new musical on stage this weekend at the university. WBUR's Quincy Walters has a story. 
A tale as old as time, high schooler develops a crush and compromises their integrity for a shot at validation and love. The main character is Judas, and Jesus is the subject of desire. The name of their school? Holy High. Denizens of Holy High, we are here to celebrate the architect of our adoration, the savior of the senior class, the hero of Holy High, Jesus Christ. It's like High School Musical meets the rock opera Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh, and I would also throw in Crazy Rich Asians. So like Crazy Rich Asians like versus uh, Jesus Christ Superstar versus High School Musical. That's creator Sophie Kim, a junior at Harvard who's actually never seen High School Musical, by the way. But Kim has seen Jesus Christ Superstar, which is a fun musical and all. But it's also very kind of like strictly like adhering to like the Bible story of like Jesus is 30 and also Judas is and he dies. And like I wanted to kind of like make it more contemporary and kind of also about like different identities. With Kim being a fan of underdogs, the result became Iscariot the Musical, a project Kim's been working on since 2020 that includes musical genres like EDM and folk and pop rock, while also tackling themes of race and sexuality and class and the ideas of pariahs, messiahs, and betrayals, all prismed through the context of present-day high school. I'm calling it a heretical Gaijin love story, um, Gaijin being like a portmanteau of like gay and Asian. Um, and basically it's about Judas Iscariot um, and he's reimagined as this like uh, queer Asian American high school senior um, in like a glitzy high school in Los Angeles. Despite the parallels to Kim's life, growing up queer in Los Angeles and being third-generation Korean-American, Kim says the reimagining of Judas's story isn't exactly autobiographical. It's basically him uh, kind of trying to figure out his identity. Um, he falls in love with Jesus, who is reimagined as a white high schooler, um, betrays him, falls in love with him, uh, kind of has to like pick up the pieces and everything. Kim says there's not a lot of options when it comes to stories of Asian people represented in the musical medium. There's basically two. It's like Miss Saigon, it's like Madame Butterfly. Madame Butterfly's a great play. Um, Miss Saigon. Miss Saigon is a Broadway musical and Madame Butterfly an opera. Both are criticized for their inauthenticity and for perpetuating stereotypes. So why a musical to tell this heretical Gaijin love story? Well, Kim says it's probably one of the queerest artistic mediums. So I really wanted to like have this huge like production that takes up a lot of space and has a really huge ensemble cast that's very diverse um, in order to kind of say that like these things can exist and like should be viewed. The mostly pan-Asian cast is an extracurricular collaboration with students from Harvard and from Berkeley School of Music. Maddie Sebastian, a sophomore at Berkeley, plays Judas. And even though her career is just beginning, she thinks it could be one of the most important roles she plays. So as a queer Asian-American actress myself, it is so, so hard to find roles that show who I am in something that's not a caricature or stereotype. I'm learning a lot about myself while playing this character. Watching him stand up for himself makes me want to stand up for myself as well and learn my self-worth as he does. Somewhere along the way, you just started leaving me on red. That's not... Now, you started coming up with reasons why we couldn't hang out and then started acting like the last nine months didn't happen. 
At the heart of Iscariot the Musical is the idea that standing up for yourself may look like betrayal to others who aren't used to you doing that, a concept familiar to some cast members in the play who aren't able to share this project with their religious families. Kim says this musical has been an exercise in fostering community. Just kind of creating that space where people can be like, oh yeah, I've also experienced this like experience, like I didn't know I could see it on stage, um, has been very like heartwarming. Kim is hoping to bring that to a bigger audience, with eyes set on the holy grail of theater, Broadway. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Quincy Walters. There's a guy I think you'll like, he's so hot and we're so tight. There's a guy I think you'll know, he's the one who steals the show. I'm over Peter, bottom feeder, I dump John and that's not all. Bye bye, see ya Magdalena. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Huntington Theater. This winter, give the gift of art, culture, and community by giving the gift of the Huntington. From gift certificates to custom seat plaques to flexible packages and memberships, there is something for everyone. For gift ideas, visit HuntingtonTheater.org gifts. My name is Juana Summers, and I'm a co-host of NPR's All Things Considered. I think our audiences crave clarity. I think they're looking for context in an incredibly crowded news ecosystem. What I love about All Things Considered is the range of different stories, whether it's the news that they need to inform their decisions for their family or the cultural stories that are the things that people are talking about in their group texts. We get to do it all. I am really proud to support several NPR stations, and I really value the work that our member stations do to help people understand their own communities. And I feel that for myself and my community, I think it's important for our coverage to always be culturally relevant and to reflect the diversity of the communities that we live in and work in. I hope that I can be a part of expanding who sees us as their natural news and culture home. I'm Juana Summers. Support this NPR station today. There is just one hour to go to get in on the match to make your contribution double for WBUR. Double. To double your You're impact. pausing on that word double. That's yeah, the to word we're emphasize. trying to get That's yeah. my emphasis of the word. Mm-hmm. You can double your impact for WBUR because we know that you really value what you get here every morning, what you get online, what you get through the WBUR app, uh, and what you get in the newsletter. The WBUR Today newsletter just dropped with the latest on uh, the, the sighting of a royal couple at the market basket. Did you hear about that? Did Bill, may I call them Bill and Kate? What were they doing at the market basket? Apparently visiting market basket as something that is very characteristic. Anthropological. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So this is the kind of stuff that we know you want to be connected to your community. You want to know what's going on and you want to support it. So you can right now and have your gift doubled just by calling 1-800-909-9287 or by going to WBUR.org. Your contribution will be matched dollar for dollar by members of our Murrow Society who are giving their money to incentivize you to give. I'm Rupa Shanoi here with Robin Young. I'm still stuck. As you call 1-800-909-9287 or go to WBUR.org to get the latest on the Royals and donate. I can hear someone out there saying, no, you may not, call them (laughs) Bill and Kate. But I can just see them in the market basket like she has really
really high spiky heels and a beautiful dress and her hair just so. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just, I, I, they're not in the crown yet, so I'm not quite <laughs> sure of them. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Market baskets are busy enough. They probably they didn't need I know. The get rules. out of there. <laughs> you know, it's too busy. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. You hear it all. You know, we have a lot of visitors to have the president, the royals. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone's coming to Boston, and, you know, there's so much news here and so much news around the, the world that you're been, you'll be listening to. You want to hear how Meghna Chakrabarty is going to, like, chew on some topic that's gotten her going, or Tiziana Deering is going to hold a public official's feet to the fire. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to hear. You know, you're here because you want to hear what's going on. Well, we'd love to hear from you. I know. We ask and we ask. It's like blood from a stone for some of you. If you haven't uh, given then you know we're what you in some corners are called a freeloader. No, we don't do that. <laughs> You're okay, Rupa. You, we don't do that. We don't do that because we know that some people can't, and we all also know that all of you will. Okay, eventually. I need a hook. I need a hook for Robin. One eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven WBUR. I'm going to pull it back. I mean, blood from a stone. <laughs> that that's a little dramatic. It we, is. <laughs> I'm looking for the drama here. We're coming up on the uh, on, on nine o'clock, and we only have what an hour for this match, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So, so it, the time is running out. All you have to do is go to wbur.org or one eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven to have your contribution doubled. 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 All you have to do is give, and your gift will go twice as far for WBUR. And but you only have a, an hour to do that, so right. please step up. Think about giving a big gift right now. I mean, that'll get matched too. So if you give a thousand dollars, it'll be two thousand. Two thousand will be four thousand, and wow. the math just keeps going. So go to WBUR.org or call one eight hundred nine zero nine nine two eight seven. We have one hour with this match. Let's help us do as much as we can with it. Go to WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. And and Bill and Kate, if you're listening, this is how we do it uh, here in the United States. This is public radio. We are supported by our listeners. Yes, we have underwriters as well and a tiny, tiny bit that comes from the government. But it's you, our listeners, uh, that support uh, this station that you've come to love and this network that you've come to love. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Don't make us come out there. No, and put Robin out of her misery. <laughs> That's right. This dramatic moment. 1-800-909-9287-WBUR.org. Please call. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, catering diplomatic receptions, corporate celebrations, milestone events, and public galas in Boston, the North Shore, and Midcoast, Maine. Artisanal cuisine and a focus on logistics. UncommonFeasts.com. Gather around. Let's feast. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. 